please keep your Bibles or reading devices open at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. People don't like big heads. And if you really want to get a good look at big heads, watch the interviews after some sporting functions. You see a lot of big heads on display. We don't like big heads. And the reason we don't like big heads is because our culture, thankfully, holds up humility as a virtue. And as I said, it's often interesting when it comes to lack of humility or big-headedness, it's often interesting just to watch how some sports people go about their post-match interviews. But recently, three weeks ago, when Wimbledon was on, I think there was a sportswoman, in this case, who took this lack of humility to a whole new level. I don't know if you were following Wimbledon, but on the 3rd of July was the fourth round match and the Latvian tennis player Helena Ostapenko lost her match to the German, I've got to get the name right, Tatiana Maria. And uh, Tatiana Maria at the, or is 34 years of age. She's ranked 103rd in the world. And Ostapenko was expected to win this match and go through, sail through to the quarterfinals. But in this, and it was an amazing match because not that I watched it, but I read about it. It was an amazing match. Uh, the lady who won it, she lost the first set, and in the second set, she was down four games to one. So she was really behind, and she actually managed to save the match, and she went on and won it. And it was great. People were ecstatic. And this uh, particular lady who won it, the uh, Tatiana, she was 34. She'd actually debuted at Wimbledon back in 2007, and since then, her career's sort of been a little bit patchy. She'd had two children, but she came back, and she wins the match 103rd in the world. Well, Helena was not happy. Apparently, she stormed off the court, threw a water bottle so violently at the chair that the chair fell over. So that's really packing some punch, isn't it? Uh, But what was interesting was what came afterwards. Now, here's the thing. Maria, the lady who won, if you know anything about tennis, uh, she actually won it on the back of the fact that Helena made 57 unforced errors. Now, that's a lot of errors and mistakes in a game, and they're unforced errors, which means that Helena was off a game. Well, people weren't happy with Helena's uh, leaving the court, but it got better, because in the press conference, she said that Maria was lucky to win. She said, I thought it was my match. She just got so lucky so she could come back. And I'm just quoting, I, just, I was reading this article and I just, I couldn't believe it. Because you know how some people can, even in their failure, can make themselves look good? She said, of course I'm really disappointed because if I lost, listen to this, if I lost against an amazing player who just beat me in a great match, you know, in other words, Maria's not an amazing, Tatiana's not an amazing player, but I just lost my match. And get this, I just made mistakes. She just collected all my mistakes, unforced errors, and that's how she won today. Welcome to the real world. You make mistakes, you play badly, you lose. It doesn't mean that the other person was a rotten player. She said, I I mean, it's always annoying to lose a match or to lose this type of match, especially when you know you were a better player and you were a favourite in this match. 
We don't like big heads, but we don't like particularly big heads who try to make themselves look even great when actually they weren't so great. You agree with me? Humility is a virtue that our culture actually prizes, but I'm going to suggest to you this morning that even in the midst of our culture that prizes humility, we're still not very good at it. And if you have a look at your Bibles, let's go straight to our Bible reading, because this section, and we're now entering into the last sections of the letter of Peter and the last three weeks of this particular series, and what is going to come through over the next couple of weeks particularly is this whole issue of humility. Peter is writing, now in our culture, we prize humility as a virtue. You have to understand that back in the days when Peter wrote this letter, 2,000 odd years ago, humility was despised. Philosophers talked about humility, but it was not in praise of humility. You have to understand that Peter is writing into a culture that said humility was not a virtue. Humility was to be despised. And into that culture, Peter writes to the church, and this is why I've called the message this morning, the community of the lowly. Peter writes to the church and the virtue that he wants to hold up to them is humility. In a culture that railed against it, Peter says the way forward for you is to be humble. And I want you to notice that he's writing to the church and he begins with the leaders and yes, we'll talk a little bit about leadership in this passage because it's relevant. But what comes through here is humble leaders and then he talks about humble followers So let's have a look at it. Let's consider for a moment into this situation. And remember the background. The background is one of persecution. And Peter is now saying to the church, this is how you are to live. In a church that not only, in a world that not only despises humility, but also despises Christians, this is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to model. Let's begin with humble leadership. Let's have a look at what Peter has to say about the kind of leaders that the church is to, uh, to experience or the church is to have. I want to begin, we're going to come back to verse 1, but I want to begin with verse 2 because I want to look at the qualities of humble leadership. Humble leaders are faithful. Notice what Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion. That word actually means to force a person or persuade them to do something that they don't want to do. You you might use uh, words to guilt them into doing something, or you might actually physically force them to do something. It's a pretty strong word. And Peter is saying that is not to be the hallmark of those who aspire to leadership or who lead your churches. They are not to do it because they've been guilted into it. They're not to do it because they're forced into it. They're not to lead in the church because you've threatened them in some way. That isn't to be the driving force. And of course, it stresses this idea of unwillingness. And so he uses two words to say, this is how you are to serve. You see, humble leaders are faithful. He says, do it voluntarily. And the other word that he uses is do it with eagerness or readiness of mind, a willingness to serve from the heart, a readiness to serve. Humble leaders are faithful. They're not forced into the role. Humble leaders don't do it because there's nobody else to do the job. They serve because God has called them to the task and they are faithful to the call of God and they're faithful to the people that they serve. That's why they serve. Humble leaders are faithful. And this is borne out in the next phrase. Humble leaders seek seek and do God's will. Notice that phrase. 
My translation says, uh, to do it voluntarily according to the will of God. The, the phrase, the will of, is being provided. Some of you have the NIV and it says there, serve willingly as God wants you to be. Literally, the phrase reads, to serve or to do this according to God. In other words, they serve because they are seeking God's will and they know God's will. They seek to do God's will in their own life, they seek to apply it and they seek to do God's will for the church and apply that to the church. Now, one of the things that often comes across or people will ask me as a pastor is, how can I know the will of God? That often comes up. Folks, we have a whole Bible that is filled with the will of God. There's always behind that question, what is it that God wants me to do? It must be some plan that he has. And that's true. God has a plan and purpose for your life. But my experience has been this, that as we start to live out this revealed will of God, those other things take care of themselves. And I think that humble leaders in the church are to be like that. They are to be people who are grounded in the word of God, who are seeking to put the will of God into their life and to live it out. And they bring that to the church as well. And yes, they do understand and seek the will of God for the church and the plans and purposes that God has for the church. But I think it begins with God's word as we start to live it out, as we start to apply it. Humble leaders are servant-hearted. Have a look at the phrase that Peter uses here in verse 2. He says, Don't serve in leadership for sordid gain. Some of you might have the old King James translation and it translates it out, I think, as filthy lucre. Isn't that a great phrase? It's referring to money that has been, uh, that you've, you've earned this money shameful, shamefully or in shameful ways. And Peter is saying that is not to characterise you as a leader. You don't do it for the money. Now, he was writing to a culture and it's a word in season for our culture today it was quite possible for religious leaders to make loads and loads of money. And as I said, that happens in our culture today as well. I came across an article a couple of weeks ago about a pastor in the United States who defrauded the US government of $8 million during the COVID crisis. Now, for all intents and purposes, when you get into the background of the pastor, it doesn't sound like he started out as a person who was going to go and do that. It sounded like he had a good ministry, he'd been a missionary overseas. But he went to the government during COVID when they were providing payments, much like we did in Australia, and they were handing out payments to ensure that people could keep their jobs. And he claimed that he had something like 100 and something employees in this ministry and took $8 million from the government. Now, somebody had not done their job in the government either, that's a whole other story. But thankfully... The government was able to retrieve the money. It hadn't been spent. But the point is this. It was interesting reading the testimonies of the people who were outside the church who were witnessing this. Now, when somebody defrauds people of large amounts of money, we rightly get upset. But, folks, I'm telling you now that when it's done in the name of God, people get more upset. And when it happens in the church, it's not a good look. And Peter says it's a warning in that culture. It's a warning in our culture as well. He is saying... Don't serve because you're going to make loads of money out of it. You serve because you're servant-hearted. This comes out more specifically in verse 3. Have a look at it. He says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. That simply means to use power over people. 
So he's saying to leaders in the church, if you're going to be a humble leader, you don't use power over people. Another way of putting it in our society would be, don't throw your weight around as a leader. You met those sort of leaders? They throw their weight around, they use power over you, they boss you around, they take no thought of your interests, they have no concern other than themselves. Jesus warned about this. If you've got your Bibles handy, turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. You remember the story, when uh, the true story, when Jesus is approached by James and John. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it tells us that mum brought them along. And James and John come to Jesus, and they come with a question. The question they ask is, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, when you set up your earthly kingdom, we want the best seats in the house. We want the positions of honour. We want to sit on the right, and we want to sit on the left. Jesus turns to them and says, listen, can you be baptised with the baptism that I will undergo? Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they both say, yes, we can, yes, we can. We can do it, Jesus. Now, you have to understand that the baptism and the cup that Jesus is talking about is symbolic. And if you want to understand what the baptism and the cup is that he's referring to, you go back to the early part of that story when Jesus, and this is the remarkable thing about this story, it says that Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And as he's on the road to Jerusalem, he turns to his disciples, he turns to his followers, and he said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be spat upon, I'm going to be treated shamefully, and ultimately I will be crucified. But I will rise again. That is the baptism, that is the cup that Jesus is talking about. That's the baptism he is about to undergo, that is the cup he is about to drink. And so when this response comes from James and John, Jesus says to them, listen, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink and can you undergo this baptism? They're going, oh yes, oh yes, we can. They haven't got a clue. And I love the response of Jesus. What is the response? You will drink the cup that I will drink and you will be baptised with the baptism that I will undergo. But as for the best seats in the house, I can't promise you that. Only my father can do that. Now, if that wasn't enough in that story, the audacity of these two to come to Jesus and ask for that, it then says in the very next verse, having heard Jesus' response, it says in the next verse that the rest of the disciples are ticked off with James and John because they feel like they're getting shoved aside. And so at that point, Jesus has to give them a lesson in humility. And this is what he says, and he uses that word that Peter, and you can hear this story coming through in Peter's letter, can't you? He says, as leaders, don't lord it over people. You can hear the words of Jesus. Jesus says, you know that those who are recognised as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. The emperor at the time was a guy by the name of Tiberius, an extremely threatened individual. He went on a purge because he thought people were out to remove him from the throne and he killed people, some of them innocent people, accusations brought against them, extremely threatened. He threw his weight around. Peter writes against the backdrop of Nero, who we've been reminded was persecuting and murdering and slaughtering Christians in horrible ways. Nero knew how to throw his weight around. Jesus says that's how the Gentiles lord it over people. You know also that it was, a similar, it was similar in the context in Israel at the time. Jesus says this, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why we're servant-hearted. Because our master is servant-hearted. And so Peter writes in this context, you can hear that in coming through in Peter's writing, you can hear it influencing what he says to the leaders of the church, what he says to us today. He's saying that we are to be servant-hearted. Humble leaders are faithful. Humble leaders seek and do God's will. Humble leaders are servant-hearted. These are the types of leaders that a local church, and humble leaders are faithful. These are the types of leaders local churches need. Now, we're in the process right now as a church. We have formed a search committee of people who are praying. A couple of leaders in our church, I'm a part of the committee, we have a couple of members of the congregation, and we are prayerfully seeking folk or men to come on to eldership here at Woodvale. Uh, that's not because we're trying to get rid of the other elders. It's not saying the other elders are bad, but we're looking to bring in new elders as well. And so I put this before you today because it's so relevant to us as a congregation. These are the types of men that we're looking for. Men who are faithful, men who are servant-hearted, men who seek and do God's will. I invite you to pray for us in that process. I invite you to pray for wisdom for us as a committee. I invite you to pray as a church for wisdom for the people we want to point to this. I wrote a paper some years ago on eldership and the qualities of elders and what we're looking for. And if you would like a copy of that so that it can help in your praying, we've got some copies available after the service. Just stop by the office, you can pick that up. I encourage you to do that because it will help you and focus in your praying as we work through this very important exercise. That is the process that we're in at this point. But I want to take this exhortation that Peter is saying here for leaders, and to those of you who are in leadership, male and female, these are the sorts of leaders that we're called to be. Leadership is not an easy task. Leadership is not a fun task. It's a difficult task. But this is the kind of leadership that we are called to. This is the kind of uh, people that God is calling us to be as leaders. People who are humble leaders, who are characterised by people of good character and humility. They're the sorts of people that God is looking for. They're the sorts of people you want to lead the community of the lowly, the community of the humble. You don't want proud leaders, you want humble leaders. Let's have a look then at humble followership. followership. Now, I don't know that followership is a word, I heard it somewhere in the past, but I think it is so relevant here. So if those are the qualities of the leader in this community of the lowly that we're called to be a part of, if that's the kind of leaders that God is looking for, what about the followers? And this is really important. Well, humble followers accept authority. Have a look at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Now... The submission here is one of willingness. It's something that the people choose to, or the person chooses to do. Now, I need to say in the context that when it says here, younger men submit to your elders, it's actually talking about the older men in the congregation. So it's not referring specifically to the elders back there, the leaders of the church. However, I'm going to argue here, I'm going to argue here that this principle of followers accepting authority and submitting to leadership 
fits the context. Even though Peter, for whatever reason, has singled out the young men submitting to the older men in the congregation, I would argue, if you look at the rest of the verse, that it's talking about this is the quality of good followers. They accept authority. They are humble. Because he goes on to say, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. So humility is to be the characteristic that is the hallmark of this community of the lowly. Now, that's all I've got to say about being a follower. Accept authority. It's that simple. We accept the authority of leaders. I can already already feel the bristling that's coming from certain quarters. Not because I've seen anybody... Uh, raising their fist at me, you just get that feeling. Whenever you talk about this issue of leadership and followership and you talk about accepting the authority of a leader, we rile against it and we do it in Australia too. We don't like... We don't like our leaders to lead in Australia. Have you noticed that? We don't. Now, I'm not saying that we should, as followers, slavishly accept everything a leader says. That's foolishness. I'm not saying that we should believe everything that a leader says. I'm not saying that at all. You end up with a cult. I've said that many times. You end up with a cult. Leaders should and can be questioned. It's okay to do that. But what I am saying is there is this spirit within us, in Australians, that riles against leadership. And, yet the, and of course, it's in our, present in other cultures, but it seems to be peculiar to Australians. And yet... Have a look at the biblical mandate. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Let me read the word to you. You have to look at this in its context when I talk about accepting the authority of leaders. Verse 7 of Hebrews 13 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and what? Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In other words, look at the godly people who have led you, remember their faith, and then model yourself on that faith. It's interesting that the term that Peter uses back here uh, in chapter 5, he talks about the leaders being examples of the flock. And the word is tupos, it, it's a type. It referred to uh, something that would, you would take a seal and you would leave the imprint, you would leave the mark of the seal and it would make a mark. And he's saying that's what leaders are to be. They're to be people who lead, uh, leave a mark on you. They're to model a godly lifestyle. They're to model Jesus. And the same thing is coming out here in Hebrews chapter 13. Peter is saying, uh, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember those who led you and model your life on their godliness. They're people who leave a mark. I remember the first time this really, really impacted me was when I went to college and it was the first week we were there and Doc Gibson stood up, who was the principal. And Doc Gibson had one of the great theological minds that this country, certainly one of the greatest theologians this country has ever produced and indeed in the world. And Doc got up, and I'll never forget it, it was in chapel. And here's this great man of God, this incredible theologian. He was the first Baptist pastor as I understand it, and leader in Australia to, to get a doctorate. So that's telling you something. He was a groundbreaker. And Doc just got up to lead us in devotions and he just opened up the Bible. I can't tell you the passage that he read from, but he just read from the Scriptures and there was the joy on his face. There was this man, who, this great theologian, who knew Jesus personally. And I sat there and I said, I want to be like that. 
I want to be like that. Why? Because he left a mark on me. He left an imprint on me. They're the sorts of leaders that we want. And this is why we accept their authority. You see, this business, you don't think for a minute I'm standing here and just saying, oh, you just accept my authority because I'm a leader or whatever. That's not what it's about. It's look at the person's lifestyle and look at what he goes on to say, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 17. You're going to love this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders? We get hung up with that, don't we? It kind of goes against the grain. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, here's what the text is saying. Do you know what the word means? The word obey, it's not exactly what you think it is. It means be persuaded by your leaders. And what's going to persuade you? Verse 7, the godly life that they live. And he goes on and he says, be persuaded, submit to them, accept their authority. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let me just give you a little insight into leadership. Leadership is not, it has some great moments of fun, but it has some moments that it's not so fun. And I remember reading a book because it's always this constant struggle in leadership between this, the great moments, and then this, the really awful moments. And I remember reading this book by Dan Allender called Leading with a Limp. And this is what he said in the opening sentence, and he had me from that first sentence. He said, leadership comes as naturally to me as root canal surgery. And I thought, finally someone's written a book about me. (laughs) Because leadership sometimes feels like root canal surgery. Or as pleasant as that. Jacob, the shepherd, and remember, Peter uses this wonderful term of being a shepherd. He talks about, or another word for it is pastor. Jacob talks about what it is, or the difficulty of being a leader or a shepherd, and he speaks from his own experience. He says this when he confronts Laban, and, and this gives you an insight into what it means to be a shepherd. You see, you must not think that a shepherd of a church is someone who just sits around drinking cups of tea and telling endless jokes and stories. That's not what it's about. And if that's what you think a leader is, you need to change your mind. We've got this ingrained in our heads that leaders in churches should just sit around and say, oh, more tea, Vicar, yes, thank you very much. I really dislike the way they portray pastors in movies. Have you noticed that? Because it's close to the bone. They're always portrayed as insipid, weak individuals. And if that's your idea of a leader, think again. I don't think Paul was an insipid individual. In fact, I think he was jolly difficult to work with. Wouldn't you think that? And yet, look what the man, or look what God achieved through him. Now, I'm not trying to argue for a defence of leadership here. Don't, don't think that. What I'm trying to say is we need to get our heads straight about what leadership is and isn't. Anyway, Jacob hints at this, of the role of the shepherd and the difficulties it can be. He says to Laban, these 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day, look at it, the heat consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. Being a shepherd in that culture was not easy. Folks, being a leader, I'm talking broadly now, being a leader is not easy. And the writer of Hebrews hones in on this in Hebrews chapter 13 and he's saying, yes, 
You should have high standards of your leaders. You should expect them to be faithful people, godly people who leave an example. You need to imitate or look at their faith and expect great greatness from them in that in that godliness. But he says, do this in a way out of an attitude of love. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls. As I said, we don't find this notion of followership really easy in Australia. Have you noticed? Have you noticed already how the press is turning on Anthony Albanese? Have you noticed that? Scott Morrison is elected to the Prime Ministership three years ago and from almost day one, the press turns on him. And it started already with Anthony Albanese. Already the questions is coming... Oh, he's overseas all the time. And it's starting to whittle away. It's begun small. You watch it grow over the next six months. There are even stories that are starting to emerge. Will Bill Shorten make a comeback as leader of the Labor Party? You know, it is ingrained in our culture and we are called folks to model something different. I'm not saying you have to like the leader, whoever it is, secular, spiritual, whatever. I'm not saying you have to like the leader. But there is something here in this message that we need to take on board and it's about us modelling what it means to follow better, to model good followership. And do you know where it begins? It begins with humility. Which brings me to my final two comments. The distinctives, the two distinctives of the new community. community. Peter writes to a church... Now, let, let's, let's get this into our hearts. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, I exert, exhort the elders among you. Why does he say therefore? The context flows right out of chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he talked about suffering. He talked about persecution. He talked about suffering unjustly. And so Peter writes, and following on from that, he, he said to the church, This is what you can expect. Suffering comes up so many times in this passage and he's saying, this is what you can expect. You are temporary residents, the world is going to be against you. It's not that we then say, oh, we take on this position of the victim. That's not what he's saying about. He's saying, this is reality. This is the world into which you are called. It is against you. You are temporary residents. You are going to suffer unjustly. Get on with the job of living for Jesus. And on the basis of that, he comes to chapter 5, which would have just flowed on in the original as a letter anyway, and he says, because of that, because that's the kind of community that you're in, the kind of culture you're in, this is what I expect of you leaders. So it begins with the leaders. And what are they to model? Humility. And then he talks to the followers in the church, and he says, you also are to model humility. It's the, it's the community of the lowly. In a culture that hates and despises you, be the new community that I've called you to be, says Peter. Look at what he says. Here are the two characteristics, the two distinctives of the new community. The first is humility. Look at verse 5. Look at what Peter says. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's a great phrase, to clothe yourself. It actually refers to putting something on over clothes you're already wearing. It referred often to an apron. So you know how when you're in the kitchen and you put on an apron to cook, you put it over the clothes you're wearing? And I thought, what a brilliant metaphor. Because when you clothe yourself with humility, you clothe yourself with something that suggests service. You see what he's saying? Clothe yourselves with humility. And then he goes on and he uses the word humble at the end of verse 5. The words humility and humble, it means to be low to the ground. That's why I've called it the community of the lowly. It means to be low to the ground. It doesn't mean to regard yourself as a worm. It doesn't mean to despise yourself. It just means that you regard yourself as being lower than others. 
Clothe yourselves, he says, with humility. That is the first characteristic of the new community. It's interesting how God, I mean, God has been speaking to me this uh, over the whole course of my life, but just in more recent times, speaking to me about it again and again. And it's interesting, here I am working on this message this week and the podcast that I've been listening to over the last few weeks, two of the podcasts this week were about humility. Isn't that interesting? I'm right in the middle of preparing a message on humility and then the podcast I'm listening to talks about humility and it reminded me of a couple of things. But here's where it gets practical. So that you know that the stuff you struggle with, I struggle with the same stuff. So in this context of humility, I went off to a meeting later in the week uh, to uh, go to an organisation which I've been part of for a number of years and uh, done some service there. Went across to this meeting and on the way down, I'm listening to this great podcast on humility and I think, oh, this is just great stuff. And I go into the meeting and because I'm kind of transitioning in this particular uh, situation... Uh, I had offered myself because I saw there was another area for me where I could serve. And so I've, on two occasions now, offered to the person who was in charge, look, I have some skills or I have skills in this area. I could serve you here. I want to serve. I'm doing it from a right heart. I want to serve. Da, 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 da. The first time that I made the offer, it was like, well, we'll think about it. The time when I made the offer this week, completely ignored. No response at all. And I was deflated. But as I got back in the car and and just kind of feeling deflated, saying they don't want me, I was reminded of what I've been listening to on the way into that meeting. Humility. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. And I'm sharing that because my experience is, I don't know about you, but my experience is that often this stuff, it's about what's going on in here. Now, nobody would have noticed at that meeting that I was getting or feeling defeated or deflated or whatever. We're good at putting on masks. But what I'm finding is God speaks to me about the inner stuff. And so I got back in the car and the Lord was just saying, this is what I mean about humility. You're not always going to get recognised for the things that you think you can do or have done. Well, that's okay. We have to learn to live in that space, don't we? And this is why this characteristic of humility is so important. And I find, as I said over and over, God is working on the inner stuff to change our character. And that brings me to the second distinctive. It's that word character. Look at verse 5. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. We come back to humility again. But I want you to, to notice what it's saying. God is opposed to the proud. Do you know what that word means? The word opposed? It, mean, it, it was used to describe an army that came and set itself up against you and took on a position of war. And that's the word that is used here. It meant to set yourself against something. And that's the word that is used to describe God here. Like That's pretty strong, isn't it? God is opposed to the proud. Bill Bram, another man who's left a mark on me, pastor in Victoria, I heard him say recently, humility is such a better option. Because who wants to have the God and creator of the universe opposed to you? Doesn't that make you suddenly get some perspective? Do I want the God and creator of the universe opposed to me, setting himself against me? And the word for proud, it's interesting because as I said, humility or the word humble means to be low. The word proud simply means to 
Put yourself above others. It means to be high. And so those who lift themselves up, who put themselves above others, indeed in some cases put themselves above God, God is opposed to them. Why are these the two distinctives of the new community? Why? What is at the heart of it? I alluded to it earlier in the message. It's because this is how our Saviour is. Have a look at verse 1 again. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and to partake also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter witnessed this in Jesus. There is glory for us, he says. That's, that's, we, we will receive glory one day. Not in this life, but we will receive it. But he said, I saw this. I witnessed the sufferings of, of Christ. And notice what he goes on to say. He talks about shepherds in verse 2. But who does he refer to in verse 4? He refers to the chief shepherd. And Peter says, I saw all of this. I witnessed it in Jesus. I saw the humility. I saw the character of Jesus. It was characterised by humility. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't proud. But he served. He said, I saw it all. I was at the Last Supper and I saw Jesus put on an apron, if you want to use that metaphor, and wash our feet. He said, I saw it in the sufferings of Jesus when he went to the cross. And folks, don't miss the significance of it. I said at the start of this message, and again, I was reminded of this through the podcast I was listening to this week. Humility was despised in that culture. And there was no more shameful way to die in those days than by a cross. To die on a cross was a humiliating, humiliating way to die. The Roman philosopher Seneca, (coughs) pardon me, this was brought out in the podcast I was listening to, writing about the humiliation of the cross, excuse me, writing about the humiliation of the cross, Seneca asked this question, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop, rather than expiring once for all? In other words, can you find anybody who would be willing to die such an excruciating death and choose that over just being snuffed out quickly? That's what he's saying. Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumours on chest and shoulders, and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? Can anyone be found who is willing to do that, said Seneca. It's a humiliating way to die. Better to die quickly than to die like that. And what is the answer of the New Testament? There was one who was willing. (coughs) His name is Jesus. And Peter said, I saw it all. I saw it in the basin and in the towel. Saw it at the cross. (coughs) Pardon me. And that is why, says Peter, we're to become such people. Interesting that this is happening at this point. I'm really sorry. So what will I close with? What is this community of the humble to look like? 
I have a quote for you which is taken from the message. And the quote reads in this way. I love the way it's translated in the message. All of you, leaders and followers alike, are to be down to earth with each other. That's what it means to be humble. And I close with this letter which describes this community of the humble, this community that Peter writes about here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And this was a letter that was written to the Emperor Hadrian somewhere between AD 117 through to 138. And it describes the Christians. The author of the letter was trying to let the Roman Emperor Hadrian know what the Christians were like. I won't read out the whole letter. I'm going to read out the significant parts. But folks... This is who they were and this is who we're called to be, the community of the humble. Listen to the words of the writer of this letter. (coughs) The Christians know and trust their God. They placate those who oppress them and make their enemies their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives are absolutely pure and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from unlawful marriages and all other impurity. If any of them have bond women or children, they persuade them to become Christians for the love they have toward them. And when they become so, they call them brother without distinction. They love one another. They rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. He who has gives ungrudgingly to him that has not. If they see a stranger... They take him into their dwellings and rejoice over him as over a real brother. For they do not call each other brother after the flesh, but after the Spirit of God. If any among them is poor and needy and they do not have food to spare, they fast two or three days that they may supply him with necessary food. Listen to this. But the deeds which they do, they do not proclaim to the ears of the multitude but they take care that no man shall perceive them. Thus they labour to become righteous. And I love this. Truly, this is a new people and there is something divine in them. There is something divine in them. May we be such people. Let's pray. Father, I just simply want to pray today for us as leaders and followers alike that you would help us all to be down to earth with each other. In Jesus' name.